transportation, you know, I've been in transportation, but I like to say it has no, it has no purpose in and of itself, right? Mm. Like Mm -hmm. it it is, it is a, a means to another. And we always need to bring the conversations back to to land use and housing. And one of the yeah. reasons why we want mobility to be as much pedestrian, bicycle, public transit based is because we recognize that cities are where we need to house folks and, and build housing. And then if we built a lot of the reasons why people don't want us to build housing is because they're concerned about the parking and, tra- and traffic impacts of more residents. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think we have to keep bringing it back to, to that that this is about people and not just the current people, but, you know, tomorrow's people. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. My daily commute used to be a 25-minute walk or a 12-minute bike ride to our office. Since COVID hit, it's been a 30-second stroll into my basement. Uh, And I'm definitely not the only one who's seen this change. In full disclosure, the prominence of sweatpants in my work attire has also grown exponentially. The way we move around cities has drastically shifted in the last two years. In the spring and summer of 2020, many cities started closing lanes to cars and opening them up to walkers, bikers, and rollers. In Oakland, California, the Slow Streets program has transformed streets into community spaces and people-oriented routes. To learn more about how COVID has impacted mobility, I sat down with Ryan Russo, the director of the Oakland Department of Transportation. He talks about how the demand for different types of mobility has changed, how Oakland opened up streets for people, and the importance of humility in building our cities. Let's dive in. Okay, so uh, maybe we'll get started if you could uh, introduce yourself and what it is that you do. Yeah, hey there. I'm Ryan Russo. I'm the director of the city of Oakland, California's Department of Transportation. And the Department of Transportation uh, is responsible for you know the public right of way, the streets and sidewalks of uh, the city of Oakland. So our traffic signals, our crosswalk striping, our stop signs, our parking meters, pretty much everything you see when you uh, cross the property line, walk outside of a building. Okay, great. Uh, so before we get into kind of some big picture uh, discussions about mobility and, and what we can be thinking about post-COVID, I'd like to just talk about Oakland's experience. Uh, you know, as, as the pandemic took hold, Oakland was pretty regularly referenced and praised for how quickly uh, it opened up streets for people-powered mobility. Um, what were those factors that allowed that to, to happen so quickly? Yeah. So um, one is uh, we had great leadership. So Mayor Libby Schaff is someone who gets it. Um, And I think, you know, these need great leadership who understand sort of that the management of our public space, our rights of way needs to be about more than, you know, storing and moving motor vehicles Um, and, and Mayor Schaff gets it. So that's, that's sort of your first uh, key ingredient Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, uh, the other, the other thing was we had done some really good planning to prepare us for, for that moment. We didn't recognize that it was planning for a pandemic, but in 2019, we had completed uh, an update to our citywide bike plan. Let's bike Oakland. And it had, um, uh, in working in partnership with communities laid out, uh, 
uh, a vision for a neighborhood bikeway system as, as an element of the of the the bike facility network. And so we had studied and identified sort of corridors that weren't our main arterial streets that move trucks and buses, but do connect people uh, between different neighborhoods. And um, uh, and those were sort of slated for kind of upgrades for for cycling and walking. And by identifying that network, um, uh, we were we were were ready. And and when the pandemic hit, and when there was sort of a request from communities and advocates to sort of say, "Hey, can we sort of close streets, do it, do sort of an open streets thing to provide kind of room for social distancing?" A lot of the that that had been happening in the past were like big events, like summer streets in New York City and right, Sequoia right. in LA. And they were um, the health departments were really concerned that that would be an attractive nuisance. That instead of like providing more room to prevent the spread of COVID, you'd actually cause kind of a concentration effect and could mm. you know create more spread. So cities were hearing that, and so these these things weren't happening. So what we thought in Oakland was well, we have this neighborhood bikeway network where we've identified these streets that are generally low volume but have some connectivity to avoid that attractive nuisance effect, we want to be in as many neighborhoods as possible. Um, and then the last and final in- ingredient. Um, so we, so that we saw that network as a sort of palette to work with the last and final ingredient was sort of bureaucrats and basically willing to take the risk to sort of say like, Hey, we can't fully close these streets 24, seven, 365. Like there's an, there's a pandemic you need to still, pick up the trash and recycling and mm-hmm. you need the deliveries, you need emergency services. So can we invite cyclists and pedestrians onto the roadbed without uh, a full closure, like a, a so closure to through traffic. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that makes, can make folks nervous. Cause it's like, do you want the recycling truck going down the street when you're also letting like kids, three-year-old kids on micro scooters, like be in the middle of the road. So there was an element of risk taking, like leap of faith taking, and 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 we were able to take that leap with our team in in Oakland. And I think that you know all those things put together allowed us to to make that um, take that that step. And it was you know really gratifying to see um, you know so many cities follow suit. Hmm. Yeah. It, a few times, uh, as we've talked about in this this series about COVID so far, it's this this concept that I, I learned a number of years back about um, planful opportunism. I, th- I think Oakland really represents that in terms of you have the plans ready to go, and then when an opportunity per you know presents itself, in this case a relatively negative opportunity, but to capitalize on it to to be responsive. That's that's wonderful. Do you do you see um, now that that's uh, that that early shift was made? Um, any considerations for kind of long-term impacts to, to your transportation mobility network um, that you can foresee as a result of some of the experiments and, and learnings from, from the experience? Yeah, I think the, um, certainly like the, the notion that, that there's a, you know, large demand to move around in a sort of outside of an automobile sort of, there was a definitely kind of a, um, uh, demand that was that was needed. The desire, I think, we're seeing like a lot more sort of school and youth transportation uh, via bicycle because mm-hmm. of what we've done. Um, and I think it's really um, 
wanted us to double down on the neighborhood bike route um, system in our bike plan to say like if we really do are able to calm traffic and get those speeds down and keep the volumes down and, and that that we can um, you know get make cycling walking you know a, a true transportation mode choice for for lots more Oaklanders hmm. so that Nice, nice segue into the the kind of the big picture question uh, I wanted to to ask you. The first one about, um, you know, how how do you see um, demand for different types of mobility changing in a post COVID world? So this has been a a massive experiment that we've all been subject to, and and you've have some specific you know experiences and and learnings in Oakland as we think about you know cities around the world. Um, what what do you what do you see for changing demand for mobility? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, biggest and, and kind of concerning is really around our public transit systems. You know, cities, yeah. c- cities don't work without effective public transit and public transit serves, you know, so many needs. Um, and it, it can be, you know, mobility of last resort for folks who are, who are low income. It can be kind of peak congestion. And I think a lot of we're, you know, sort of seeing the vulnerability of having a lot of our transit be based on sort of commute period to downtowns, um, sort of hub and spoke style mm. public transit systems. And with, you know, the question of, you know, what does sort of white collar office future look like? Are those buildings going to be filled in that same way and at those same rates and our pricing structures of monthly passes and, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, can, can public transit systems kind of adapt to, to, to that sort of less hub and spoke, less commute oriented. Mm-hmm. Like when we saw traffic get back up to the same traffic levels, the shape of those traffic curves was not the same sort of camel to humpbacks, you know, AM commute, PM commute. It's more, much more blobby throughout the day. Okay. And, um, so, and then, you know, folks who stayed reliant on transit, folks who are, uh, you know, likely to be low income in, in um, you know, different sectors than sort of the white collar office sector, they still need public transit, but their, their origins and destinations are more distributed. So mm-hmm. can, is that, is this the moment to sort of reorient our public transit and put, um, you know, those considerations more front and center. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe describe the challenges of, of provision of transit for, for folks that, you know, haven't been in the, in the details of, of that in terms of, uh, you know, if, if you have the, a regularly dependable, two camel humps um the the cha- the challenges of of i guess both temporal throughout the day and geographic distribution what kind of new pressures does that put on a on a transit system yeah so if you think about one of the motivators for particularly a you know a white collar professional to to get on public transit is that sharp peak causes congestion in the system and all public transit can be like, oh, I don't have to sit in the traffic, which is frustrating. I can, um, I might be on a dedicated right of way if you're on rail, mm. so you can buy bypass that as opposed to, to a bus. And and um, so it's sort of good for the user. There's a the one motivation is like it's it's where transit gets more competitive, 
in a lot of cities with, mm. um, you know, single occupant driving, but it's also very expensive. Um, if it's, especially if it's like all suburbs, a central business district, um, it's very inefficient. You get a lot of deadhead, um, public transit miles because the vehicle that gets you in. And if, if it needs to make another run in that AM commute, it's got to kind of basically go back empty. Um, and, um, so it's, it's both like a market opportunity for transit. So it's where you get a lot of riders and you, when you get higher income folks, frankly, you know, that's where like political power can also rest and you get more buy-in to public transit, Mm -hmm. you know, funding. Interesting. Um, And so if you lose those riders, there's a, there's sort of an efficiency opportunity of maybe being more sort of covering your city better and providing better frequencies kind of throughout your city in a true network. But you also, you know, my concern is the loss of, in essence, the, you know, frankly, if wealthier folks aren't riding public transit, they might start, you know, kind of voting to sort of not fund it. Right. Right. Yeah. We did a workshop a number of years ago and it, 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 this, this gentleman made a comment. We were in a far suburb, uh, suburban community in, in Calgary and we were talking about transit options and where, you know, money is invested. Um, and earlier in the workshop, he had described himself as a very committed driver. Uh, but when the question came up about where those dollars go, he put it all, all in on transit and uh and i asked him what what that was about and he said well that gets lots of people off of my road <laughs> so it's an interesting interesting perspective of he at least understood the relationship between you know making transit competitive by investing in it but that's a really interesting point i hadn't thought of in terms of you know if if folks um experience transit then they understand its utility and importance but if you start to lose those folks then what the longer term impacts on on power and resources over time that's that's a really interesting point uh so so i'm wondering in terms of uh the transit question um and i guess the the other work that that's that oakland did to open up neighborhoods i think that's really really interesting what were some of the the equity uh, conversations that that uh, you've seen in in the transportation sphere over the last twenty four months that have that maybe didn't exist beforehand. Yeah, so you know one of the things that's so great about working in Oakland is that it's always been a city that um, that's championed racial equity. You know, from the mm-hmm. founding of the Black Panthers, um, and it's just been a place that has in its core pursuing justice and fairness and um oak dot had put you know sort of four key values as it was founded as a new department in 2017 of equity safety sustainability and trust between government and the communities it serves Mm. um i think that with the emergency of covid and you know what we call the slow streets program um you know we, we we saw a really important need for our communities and came and, and moved very quickly with that program. But our bike plan and our other plans, you know, we were working hard to build trust with historically underserved communities, mm-hmm. uh, communities of color, communities that have been impacted by, by redlining, um, by housing discrimination, by um, urban renewal, freeway building, um, really trying to 
rebuild those relationships. I think there was a there was a breach that that us government kind of moving so quickly and in, in, in and in many parts because a lot of those communities had essential workers who, who still needed to commute. Um, were facing challenges that the slow streets program didn't um, didn't specifically address. It wasn't the need that they saw uh, uh, needing and 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 moving quickly, you know, didn't allow for the sort of typical conversations that we would have. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, o- Oakland, you know, we've gotten a lot of notice in ur- urbanist circles for the the corridor slow streets, but I'm just as proud of how we pivoted when we heard that from the communities we were trying to build relationships with and added a slow streets, essential places program, uh, sort of branch of the slow streets program, which was to, um, you know, to, to look at essential locations like COVID testing sites, grocery stores, where places where people were going on those arterial streets that couldn't be closed and pinch those downs and, and provide, safer crossing opportunities, uh, uh, in communities where, um, uh, you know, we were hearing this, that the slow streets program really wasn't something that was meeting their needs. Um, so, and I think that, and then, you know, and, and I think, um, that really prompted an important conversation in many cities and, and our own around, um, you know, uh, our slow streets just for white collar professionals who are stuck at home on Zoom and they need mm-hmm. a place to go f- go for a walk. Are we really meeting our priority communities' needs? And Oakland was very transparent about that. And I think when you talk about equity, you've got to talk about data right away. And so we were mm-hmm. very transparent, and we did surveys. Um, and and you know, I think what a city might do is do a survey: Is this program popular? And when we heard from folks, 74% of people thought, was like, yeah, we, we love slow streets, but we asked demographic data, you know, income, uh, race and ethnicity and geography. And when you looked at it, it was the neighborhoods where that were whiter, that were wealthier, um, that the slow streets were a lot more popular and there was a lot more ambivalence in the data uh, in a neighborhood where that was lower income or a higher proportion of uh, residents of color. So, um, you know, we were transparent about that and that informed how we pivoted and managed the program. And I think that also informed other cities is how they with, decided how fast they would go with their own or if they would go at all with their own mm. sort of similar slow streets program. Hmm. And so that, that pivot, I, can you maybe just give some some context on on how that was received um, by different community partners that that maybe were were ambivalent or you know explicitly asking for for some of those changes? Well, I think that yeah, the pivot was well received. Um, um, I think you know, I I think some we heard from some folks that they were surprised that we kind of listened and adjusted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of my favorite words in this work is humility. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, there's an element of, of humility. I think we, an element of hubris in our initial steps and an element of humility in, in, yeah. in sort of keeping our ear to the ground and, and making adjustments and not getting too, you know, not getting defensive, staying in the conversation and, uh, you know, recognizing that 
we have to serve all of the public. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's a great perspective. And I think it's really important to bring up because I think oftentimes data gets used as a way to increase the hubris <laughs> and the expertise of folks, as opposed to being a tool to be more empathetic or more responsive to the communities that were, you know, all the, all the various city building uh, professions and enterprises are supposed to be serving. So that's, that's really helpful, helpful insight. Uh, so, so as we, as we move to, um, you know, thinking about the, the, the mix of how folks move around cities um, post COVID, whenever that happens, um, how, how do um, things like ride sharing, car collectives, and even autonomous mobility, how do those factor into the decisions and thinking of, of, of cities these days? Yeah. I, well, it was interesting. I, I went to the, um, the co-motion conference in Los Angeles it was one of the first transportation conferences sort of back in person. And, you know, in, in local government, we've kind of been in crisis mode a bit in, in serving sure. our communities and sort of sure. kind of turned away from the, all the fancy tech talk of from scooters to, to autonomous vehicles, to flying taxis. Um, and, you know, going to this conference, it was like, Oh, those people are still there, still doing their thing. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, frankly, the conversation didn't seem all that much changed uh, in in those circles. I think that, um, uh, you know, one of the things that is going to need to be reconciled is the sort of like, you know, capitalistic gold rush that's happening in this space versus Mm -hmm. like, again, focusing on our goals of equity, safety sustainability, uh, trust with communities. And, you know, we've been champions in trying to tell these private sector operators that that's, they got to learn how we work and work with us if they want these services. Um, we have a great example in, in, in Oakland, in the East Bay of the Bay Area, California, of a, of a car share um, company um, that has survived the up and downs of like the fads of capital. It's called mm. GIG, stands for get in and go. And it's run by the um, AAA of Northern California, Nevada, and Utah. And it's so, and it's so, it's not like venture capital money or, or OEM, you know, car company money looking to like make a quick buck. Or um, so they're a lot more patient. And so mm. it's so we have one of the, and you know, they've they're now in Seattle, Sacramento, and some other cities, and um, they're uh, you know a, more kind of community minded looking at um and and so you know we have what you saw you saw like a boom in free floating car share in, in the United States car to go but then it didn't last um and so and you saw that industry re retrench so i think um it's really important for you know shared mobility to succeed but we've got to be thinking hard about the partnership models with mm. cities. And I would like to see policymakers, you know, um, get more creative around those partnerships. You know, even, even going back to, you know, the bike share from, you know, starting in, you know, 2010 and when the city's doing bike share, there was this sort of like, even though public transit and in essence, you know, public automobility is, is deeply subsidized. There was like 
frankly, biking wasn't popular enough to provide public subsidy for these programs. Hmm. Um, and, um, yet there, you know, the, the efficiency around sharing is so large that, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think, I think cities need to, need to think, think harder about that, but it's not easy in an era of strapped budgets and, you know, other, frankly, you know, in Oakland, we have bigger, bigger priorities for our limited public dollars. You know, we have an sure. affordable housing crisis and, uh, sure. you know, you know, public safety and, and those sorts of things. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't, if you don't have those basics met around public safety, if you're, you know, if, if crime is going up or there's, you know, homelessness is getting worse. If you don't have those sort of basics in your city met, like all of this sort of like fancy new transportation stuff is going to just seem like a luxury. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. And with, with all the, the priorities that any municipal government has to deal with, you know, especially as the end of the funnel of various downloads from federal state or provincial <laughs> to municipal it's it's yeah it's it, but at the same time the amount of um investment and attention that that these technologies are getting is just kind of you know feels like this wave that's coming so how to reconcile those things and your your point about um partnership um uh, is is interesting could you could you maybe talk a bit about what elements of a successful partnership could look like? I mean, even, you know, calling back to bike shares and, and those kinds of lessons learned. Yeah. I think that, um, one is the, the companies need to understand that we need to be, and they need to be in dialogue with communities in particular priority communities and, and mm-hmm. be able to talk about things other than in addition to their transportation product, um, you know, communities priority might be job opportunities, training opportunities, mm-hmm. other participation opportunities. Um, so, you know, we, we've had some success with that with, um, you know, the shared electric scooter um, industry. Um, I think so, so when, if you're doing a permit scheme again, and then, and then in the ser- in terms of the service itself, recognizing that we're going to want it to be um, easy to access for low income households, there would be those kinds of programs to, to for the geographic distribution, not just to be, you know, where the, you know, the reality is like things like, you know, shared scooters or, or shared bikes, these programs are going to, they're going to pencil out maybe, better in certain neighborhoods so if the mm-hmm. if, so if we're at a bottom line focus they're going to be like we want to serve this geography and it's like we're a government we need to serve all the geographies and we're trying to do equity which is like folks who are struggling to pay the rent or who have been you know victims of systems that haven't allowed them to to get ahead or reach the potential that others have been allowed to we want those services concentrated there so mm-hmm. um you know the, the structure of the partnership sort of should keep those kind of values and goals in mind from the get-go. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, so that's, that's really helpful in terms of, you know, you can envision the trying to discover where the, the overlap of the Venn diagram is in terms of we have a product and instead of it's not just sales of that product, what does that product enable that aligns with the, the community priorities? Okay. That's great. That's great. 
Um, okay. So, I mean, we've covered, covered a lot of ground here and I think, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, you could get into any sort of technology issue, you could get out to any specific sort of technical solution, but, you know, general principles of, you know, around partnership and priority, humility, patience, <laughs> interesting that you, that all those, all those, if you have those, then the, the specific technical solutions, uh, you, you'll be in a better position to utilize those technical solutions for better, better ends for the, for the community, which is great. Um, so one last question I have for you is something we ask everybody that, that joins the, the podcast is, um, can you tell me about a city that you love and why you love it? Mm. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So, I, lo- I love cities, but o- Oakland has been a, a tremendous city. I've been working here for coming up on five years. And um, like I mentioned, it's values. Um, it, it's, it's quest for, for justice and, and fairness mm-hmm. and, and equity is uh, a reason why I love it. It's, it's diversity, um, you know, uh, really, you know, for, for a city in California, just, you know, tremendous diversity um, and, and like we talk, we're talking a lot about diversity now, but you know, true inclusion in that, um, wanting those groups to be sort of equal, um, in, in the conversation. Um, and then it's, it's, it's natural beauty, um, sort of the combination of, of being able to get around by bicycle in a city to destinations, to, to, to do your grocery shopping, to get to your work to have reasonable distances and calm streets and able to to get around without being overly reliant on an automobile but yet having you know access when you do get an automobile to be in 12 minutes to be in a redwood forest that's uh, pretty spectacular mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this episode concludes our what's next series From public space, to mobility, to housing, to public health, to supply chains, we hope this series got you thinking about what's next for our communities as we deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. Throughout the series, we've seen how COVID has served as an accelerant of trends that are already taking place and a magnifier on issues that need addressing. My hope is that we can use this generational shakeup as an opportunity to re-examine how we think and act to make our communities better. I would challenge everyone listening to think about what issues in your community have been exposed through COVID, what lessons have been learned, and how your community can emerge from the pandemic as a more equitable place where more people have the opportunity to live their best lives. Thanks so much for listening to the What's Next series. We're going to be taking a break for a little while as we plan our next series of the podcast. Until then, there's dozens of episodes in the archives that you can explore. Thanks for tuning in. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.